Welcome to Don't Be Denied. This will be part one of two parts related to the top reasons for medical denials in the first place. Our conversations will help you understand the what and why you were denied and help in the event of needing to launch an effective appeal. I'm Dr. Alan Farron, and my smiling co-host is the ebullient Jordan Shields. Ebullient. Alan's word for the day. You want to work that in the sentence? Just see if anybody knew what you were talking about. Exactly. Ebullient does not mean I'm rich. I know that much. Let's talk about what's going on in terms of how we divided this into part one and part two. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. So we divided into part one and part two. How's that? Does ebullient mean smart? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that it does make sense to at least arbitrarily divide the most common reasons for denial into two distinct buckets, administrative and medical. There's some spillover in the buckets, but it's important to remember what the differences are, and we're going to explain them. One of the most common and simple reasons for the rejection you get from an insurance company is missing or incorrect information. Typically, it's an administrative problem. Sometimes it's on the other end where the carrier is trying to read it and they can't read a doctor's handwriting or they can't read the administrator, they can't read the numbers and so on. It could be a name misspelled. My name is Jordan. Trust me, all my life I've got my name misspelled all the time. And no, it is not Gordon. It is Jordan with a J. And then sometimes they put in incorrect medical code, which if you've ever seen a code book, it's like this thick. These are called CPT codes, which stands for, I have no idea, but it's something about protocols. And sometimes they'll put in the wrong code number. And when an examiner is looking at this for the first time, remember they're whipping through their paperwork as quickly as they can. If they see that something doesn't line up, they're going to reject it and send it back, go, sorry, don't know it. Typically, a call to your doctor's office to explain what happened with the denial letter, what they need, is usually sufficient. They can simply resubmit the claim as if it never even occurred. Carrier gets it again. They go, okay, because they don't even log it as a valid claim if they reject it out the door. So it's not like they're keeping a file on you in case you should ever write back to them. That's pretty simple. Call your doctor's office. Sounds easy enough. But Alan, can you tell me how the codes are broken out or broken down or just plain broken? What do these codes mean? Well, the codes are, are actually not arbitrary and capricious. They are carefully developed by major organizations, namely the American Medical Association for CPT codes, which is current procedural terminology. Well, that's what it stands for. Thank you for that. Okay, now I know. Okay, I'm going to write that down. There's an alphanumeric system that is used for a variety of codes. So one of the most important codes that's first looked at are the ICD-9 codes or ICD-11 or 12 now, which is the International Classification of Diseases. So if you have heart disease, there is a ICD code for that. If you are having a hernia operation, there is a CPT code for that. And then it goes on and on and on in terms of variations in if there is a complication to the surgery. Then there are other codes called the HCPCS codes, HCPS, which are the healthcare common procedural code system. And that's for anything from procedures to services, to supplies, and even transportation. So remember folks, when you're going to a cocktail party, you really want to impress your friend, 
tell them that you had something wrong with your CPT, so you got an ICD-99, which went ahead and resulted in HCPCS or HCPCS, and they'll look at you like you're crazy. And then you could tell them all about your medical claim denial and completely bore the crap out of them. Tips, we're happy to provide. So with all this mishmash and alphabet of super codes and their overlap, it's not difficult to see that coding error can occur. The most important consideration for you to be aware of is the procedure you underwent the device that was prescribed or used like crutches or a walker or whatever products you've been given like dressing supplies so that you're billed accordingly. As we've talked about it in other podcasts, it's important to have all the information down. Who did I see? What did I do? When did I do it? What did I get? How often did I use it? How long did I use it? Did I return it? Did I get a refund? All that. Remember, they're going to be throwing a lot of stuff at you, especially when you're dealing with surgery. Oh, Mr. Shields, you need crutches. Oh, Mr. Shields, you need this, you need that. And like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm being wheeled down the hall as they're throwing stuff at me and boom. So it's important to write all this stuff down. There are codes for appointments. There are codes for equipments. There are codes for routine office visits, intermediate offices, follow-up offices, post-surgery, pre-surgery, all that stuff. It is up to you to keep track of all that so that when the billing department sends you something, you've got a category for it, you got to file for it. And when the insurance company says something you don't like, you've got something to, to back it up. Here's a question, Jordan. Okay, good, because I was tired of talking. Now I can be abusing it again and turn my brain back on. It's very hard to get in touch with your doctor's office regarding a billing. So I think it's probably more important to, to get to their billing office one of the issues will be those people with electronic medical records, they can give a clue to their doctor online to suggest and let them know that there is a problem. But most often it'll be the insurance person in that doctor's office that's the key individual, at least at this stage. No, it's a good point. So there, there are two things. When you call the doctor's office, you wanna to talk to their insurance billing person you never want to talk to the doctor. Frankly, the doctor's going to return you over to that person anyway. And when you get a bill, sometimes you get a bill from a doctor's office, but that's typically at lower level, maybe with a dentist, you know, that kind of thing. But these days, especially where we are north of San Francisco, everybody owns everybody else. So all my bills come from an entity. And in that bill, it says for claims, questions on the billing, call this number. So Alan's quite right. That's your first line to say, this code's wrong. This thing's wrong. What do I do? What's the process? They may refer you back to the doctor. They may go back to the doctor themselves. They're not going to fix it. They're going to need someone else to fix it. But yeah, that's your first step. So look for where the source of information is coming from and then get back to them. Tell me about out of network. What, is, what does that really mean? And what's the problem associated with that? Well, don't do it would be my first thing. There are two situation or three situations where you have out of network. If you have a health maintenance organization or HMO, these are either closed systems where they own the hospital, they own the doctors and everything is all one big thing, or they're open systems where they contract with medical groups and the hospitals separately and the other medical vendors separately. But everything is together. When you go outside of this system, you're not covered unless it's an emergency or unless it's been pre-approved by the doctor's office. Even there, when you look at your card and you see that a primary care physician or PCP has been assigned, one you've chosen, 
or if you didn't choose one, one that got assigned to you. And then there's a PMG, a primary medical group. You're supposed to talk to that doctor who's then supposed to refer you to physicians in that group. And if you decide to go outside of that group without permission, you're not covered. So when you see a claim come back and they go, this isn't covered, you went outside the network. First question to ask is, did I go outside the network? Did I have permission to go outside the network? If the answer is yes and no, you're out of luck. If you want to go outside the network, you have to ask permission. If you're with a closed system like Kaiser or Tufts or Harvard Pilgrim or some of the others, you have to ask permission to go outside the system. Unless it's an emergency, and in an emergency, it has to be a life or death emergency or seriously urgent, like you broke your arm. And breaking your arm, it isn't a life or death thing, but it's pretty serious. And so if you break your arm, you can go get medical care, and that's going to be fine. So this is really closely allied, I think, to the denial for this is not a covered benefit. Yeah, but typically they'll say you received out of network, but when they say it's not a covered benefit, you have to look both in the evidence of coverage to see if it's covered or not covered, and really to see if it's specifically not covered. And you have to look at the out-of-network. But we were talking about out-of-network, and I was just dealing with one aspect of it, and that's the HMO. The other two plans you'll see are EPO, which means Exclusive Provider Organization, and PPO, which means Preferred Provider Organization. Those are a little bit looser, where you don't have to sign up with a doctor up front. You don't have to sign up with a medical group up front. You can see anybody you want, anytime you want, with an exclusive provider organization, it's only those in the network, but the network may be nationwide. With a PPO, you see people in the network and you're gonna be paid at one level. If you see people outside the network, you're gonna be paid at another level, but you're gonna get penalized twice. The first penalty, this isn't always true, but it does happen a lot. The first penalty is that they paid the doctor or the medical provider according to the negotiated rate they have for a preferred provider, which is a lot less than what's being charged. And secondly, they typically have a, another schedule and they put your expenses on that schedule. So you're paid over here for listed providers and over here for unlisted providers. They won't deny you on those claims, but what you're going to see on the benefit statement is here was the charge, thousand bucks. Here was the allowed charge, $200. And then here's what we paid, whatever. Where'd the $800 go? It went out of your pocket because you went out of the network. And they're gonna tell you right on the benefit statement, unless it's an emergency, unless you get permission in advance in writing on either the HMO or the PPO, if you out of the network, it's on you. Don't do it unless it's an emergency. Oh, I, got, I got all excited there. Yeah, I know, this is in your wheelhouse. What can I say? It is, it is. This is the kind of fascinating conversation they have at cocktail parties. All I know. Time. You're lucky I'm not asleep. So what happens? I mean, where do we go from there, Alan? I mean, if you get this kind of stuff and you're looking at these charges, how do you read this? What's your responsibility? How are you supposed to handle the spread? Have I covered that adequately? Or maybe you've got different words to describe the same thing. No, I think you've covered that pretty well. I, I'd like to emphasize the emergency issue because what you personally feel is an emergency may not be really considered an emergency by your health insurer. And it's always best to first call your primary care physician and make sure that you get really the equivalency of a prior authorization to go to the emergency room. If you just show up unannounced and it turns out not to be a true emergency, 
And a true emergency is something like severe abdominal pain, vomiting that cannot be controlled, fever that's not controlled with the usual means of acetaminophen, Tylenol, and or aspirin and other drugs, then you're going to experience a huge bill for that. A severe headache that doesn't go away might or might not be considered an emergency, but typically headaches will not fall into the category of an emergency. The way I always explain it to clients, especially when we have large group meetings, as I'll say, if you have a child and your child is lying passed out on the floor, you pick up the child, you run to the car, you take them to the emergency room or you call an ambulance right away, that's an emergency. If your child is not feeling well and is maybe vomiting, but is just kind of dribbling down their chin and they've got a fever, that's not a life or death emergency. Definitely requires a phone call. Should definitely go see somebody. Maybe an urgent care center that's open at night. Maybe your doctor will take after all calls. Maybe they have someone on call for them. But it's not an emergency room visit, and it could easily be turned down. I had a situation a long time ago when my middle daughter was like one and a half, and she came toddling toward me. She tripped, she fell, she hit her head on the table, and she opened up a cut right above her eye, and I had an HMO. Now, this is a head laceration. This is serious stuff, and it was bleeding, not profusely. So I called the doctor's office, and they had an on-call person. I told them what was going on. They said, go to the emergency room. I went to the emergency room. I made a note to them and told them to put it in the chart. Doctor said, I should come here because it's a true emergency. They stitched it up. She was fine. Everything was great. Then I got the denial. They said, well, it wasn't a true emergency. And I raised holy you-know-what. And I said, oh, yeah, we'll check the notes from the emergency room, which I got. And it said that the doctor authorized it. It all worked out. So even when something is serious, I took pains. I noted the time. I noted the doctor's name. I knew it wasn't a true life or death emergency, but it was 10 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night. I wasn't quite sure where to go. So I was going to go wherever they sent me. They said, go to the emergency room and therefore. But it took me two months to make sure that I got paid. So even when it seems cut and dry, it's not cut and dry. The good news for at least the pediatric population is there are a lot of pediatric after-hours clinics now. And, you know, barring trauma, like facial trauma, that's not necessarily considered an emergency otherwise. I had a, a similar experience when I was in the Air Force, and my son, I think, was around four or five years old, and we landed at the base, and the first thing he did was fall on a piece of glass and cut his face. Well, corpsmen in the military are not allowed to suture children's faces or adult faces. It has to be the ER physician, whoever is staffed there. And general medical officers are often assigned to the emergency room, not typical surgeons. And I was midway in my training as a surgeon. And so I marched into the emergency room and I said, this is who I am. I'm Dr. Farron. This is my son. I'm sewing him up. And everybody just kind of looked and said, okay, 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 Captain Farron. So that was it. And every year they have an anniversary dinner of the day Dr. Farron became a complete blankety blank blank and they still got his picture. On exactly. So let's get away from emergencies because that's not a whole lot of fun. Let's talk about the fun and excitement that involves in timing errors because this only take me a second. Sometimes, sometimes you're going to have claims that are denied because they came in well after the time limit. This is when things get really interesting. Typically, typically carriers, they don't say it in their plan book because they don't say it in their evidence of coverage. 
but it's a general administrative rule that they won't pay any claim that comes in after a year. Some won't pay claims that come in after six months. Now, you may think this has got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard because who could take six months to file a claim? And I'll tell you who, hospitals and some medical vendors and even some medical offices who are either not well-staffed or not well-coordinated or whatever. But it happens and it happens all the time. When you've had a service, you should be expecting a bill from somebody at some time. If you don't get that bill within 90 days, you want to make inquiries. Where's my bill? When am I going to see some requirement? Again, talk to the billing office, talk to the billing person or the insurance person in the doctor's office, talk to the billing office in the hospital. Where's my bill? What's going on with my bill? Who'd you talk to? What time to talk to them and all that? You want to put them on notice because if they keep telling you they're working on it and all of a sudden the insurance carrier comes back and says too bad, then you're going to take those notes and you're going to stick them back to the hospital and go, you blew it, Charlie. I'm not paying it. Good luck with that. It's going to be a real argument, but you do have to watch. Remember, this is always your responsibility and your fault if it doesn't go right. So keep track of that. That was supposed to be simple. It still took me three minutes. One of the related issues with this is that hospitals typically do not send out bills the next week, the next day. It could be a number of months after. And the same is true from a medical group. It depends on who's doing the insurance. So again, I would call to make sure that the bill has been submitted and that if you have dual coverage, that the bill has also been sent to whoever is secondary. So and speaking of the secondary and speaking of the primary and all that, you know, we call this series Don't Be Denied, but it's really Don't Be Denied and Don't Be Confused. Because sometimes it's a question of you're not getting paid, not because somebody's denying your claim, but because nobody knows where it goes. Nobody knows where to find it. Nobody knows what order it's in. So we're going to talk about something called coordination of benefits. And this occurs when an individual is covered by more than one medical plan, you and your spouse or partner, you and your child, who pays what, when, and how, who's primary and all that. Can I do that? Please go right ahead. <laughs> this is why he's the life of the party. Oh, somebody tell me, yeah. who can tell me about coordination of benefits? We're not going to play charades. Tonight, we're going to play acronyms. Okay, COB. I have to do that with you, Jordan. Otherwise, I'm just, <laughs> just going to sit here. All right, we'll see if you get it right. Go ahead. The name of this game is Who's the primary, right? So you, you can correct me through this. So if you have your employer's based insurance and you have a problem, you are primary through your employer. If your spouse or significant other is also covered by this same employer based insurance, your insurance is also primary. Now, if your spouse or significant other are covered through their employer if they are employed, then it becomes a little bit more tricky. In that instance, uh, if they have a problem, their insurer will be the primary. Where things get a very confusing is if you have a child and they're covered through both your employer-based insurance and your spouse or significant other's employer-based insurance, there's something called the birthday rule. The primary in this instance is 
who has the earlier birth date in that year, not who is older. So how did I do with that, Jordan? That was pretty good. So the birthday rule says, if I have a child and they're on my plan, they're on my spouse's plan, I'm born in June, my wife is born in October. The primary payer for my child is my plan because I have the earlier birthday in the year. There's one area where coordination of benefits doesn't come in, and that's usually with an HMO. So the whole idea of coordination of benefits is not necessarily who's primary and secondary. That's the main part of it. But then are they going to coordinate and then pay you 100%? When you're dealing with a PPO or indemnity plan, you should get 100%. When you're dealing with an HMO, the fact that I'm covered with Kaiser and my wife is covered with Kaiser, <clears throat> the two plans do not sync together. They pay according to what each one of them pays, even though we might be double covered. And what I always tell clients is there's no reason to have your spouse, or your children double covered under an HMO because there's no coordination of the benefits. They are completely separate. When there's coordination, the primary plan pays first and the secondary plan is supposed to cover the gaps, not covered by the primary plan. This is not always true. This is not always true. Some employers have what they call it non-duplication of benefits. So how does that work? A typical coordination is I had a $100 charge and I've met my deductible and the carrier pays 80%. So I got 80 bucks, 20 bucks is left. I submit the 20 bucks to my spouse's plan as the secondary payer. They take the 20 bucks and they say, typically, we would have paid 80, we only owe 20, here's your 20 bucks. That's how it normally works. Sometimes they say, uh, we would have paid 80, but it's only 20. We're only going to pay 80% of 20. So then they're going to pay you $16. Or sometimes they say, we would have paid 80. You got 80. We're going to pay zero. It could be one of those three, which drives everybody crazy. And when they call me and they say, well, what? how come I didn't get paid? I go, I don't know. I'd have to look at the other person's coverage to see what they say. In small group which in California is under 100 employees and most other states under 50. If you and your partner, child, whatever, have small group plans, it is almost always a coordination of benefits where you get 100% under the PPO. When one of the groups is a large group, it could be anything because often those documents are customized for that particular group. We try to take a simple concept. It becomes very confusing. And the really short and simple answer is always, it depends. It depends. It depends on what this says and what that says and so on. For those of us who are on Medicare and have a Medicare supplement, Medicare is always primary and the supplement will be secondary. And there is a significant discrepancy between what Medicare pays based upon what they allow when you look at some of these bills, I mean, the hospital is charging $2,300 and Medicare says we're going to allow, let's say, 1000 but we're only paying 500 So that's very common to see that. Just to make it more complicated, if you're over 65 and you have Medicare and you're covered with your employer's plan, Medicare is not primary. The employer's plan is primary. Most often people turn 65 get off their employer's plan anyway. And then just one final wrinkle, just because 
if I have coverage with my employer and I have an individual plan, okay, first of all, why would I do that? But let's say I did, both plans pay primary. So if you wanna get rich, have a really expensive claim, keep your individual plan, file under both and make a bunch of tax-free money. We never recommend that. It's not the brightest thing to do, but it has happened. And then there's another odd wrinkle and that has to do with if your other coverage has to be with railroad retirement plan. But now we're getting really obscure. Just so you know, invite us to a party. We can talk about this stuff. But there's always little rules within rules and wheels within wheels and complicated stuff. So let's just round this whole thing off with one quick final thing about calendar year limits. Alan, why don't you take that? What, is, what does that mean, the calendar limits? What are we talking about here? I think you're better suited to talk about calendar limits than I am, Jordan. I may be, but my voice is starting to go because I got so excited about all the other stuff. I'm going to let you take us to the finish line. All right. So typically, and I keep using the word typically because I have to, because nothing is 100% with health insurance, but typically your plan is a calendar year plan. You have an annual calendar year deductible. You have an annual calendar year out of pocket limit. You have an annual calendar year maximum, which is almost always unlimited. Always calendar year. It doesn't matter when your plan started. It doesn't matter that your plan renewed in July, in April, in October. It doesn't matter. You have a calendar year plan. Now, our agency has about 2,000 group clients, so we're pretty big. I can count the number of clients that have a plan year plan on less than one hand. I think we have three and they're all either municipalities or school districts and they have a July to July year. That's pretty rare. So even though your open enrollment or your anniversary period is sometime during the year, your deductible, your coinsurance, your out-of-pocket limit, everything is done on a calendar year basis. So if you have a claim in late December, you have a claim in January, even though it was for the same thing because you were seeing doctors, whatever, don't be surprised if the carrier hits you over here and then hits you with a new deductible over here. Okay, my voice is gone. That's pretty much all I've got. What do you have, Alan, to wrap it up? Anything? Well, I think this has been a, a pretty comprehensive coverage for the administrative reasons for denials. On our next podcast, we're going to cover more of the medical reasons for denials. And for me, that'll be a little more interesting. I've had trouble staying awake for this one. But... <laughs> Yes, that will be mostly Dr. Farron. And then it's my turn to take a nap. It'll all That's be good. Right. Thank you for watching. And you can find us on medicalappealexperts.com. We hope to see you. Thanks. It just makes good sense to have dedicated and experienced professionals at your side when you have a medical insurance claim denial or failed appeal effort. As experts, we are available to help guide you through your complicated, confusing, and often frustrating healthcare journey. Whether through a subscription to our educational series, blog posts, or the use of our custom personalized appeal assistance, we are your best choice to help resolve your insurance carrier denial issues. Connect with us for further information at medicalappealexperts.com.